Father, these are wonderful, wonderful words that we've sung. We've sung about the wonderful cross. We've sung about your work of grace in our hearts that allowed us to and impelled us to make that decision to follow Jesus, to exercise the gift of faith in all that you are for us in Christ. What wonderful words and what wonderful truths that our hearts delight in. And all of these are fueled by our knowledge of you as you've revealed yourself in your word. And so now as we come to this this time together in your word, before we come to your table, we ask that you would, by your spirit, give us the delights and help us to see the delights of Christ from the truths that we'll look at in 1 Corinthians 10 this morning. And help us truly to worship you in spirit and truth as your people gathered around your table to the glory of God in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, open your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 14 through 22. 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 22. Now, if you're visiting with us this morning, that will be... uh, All that you know is 1 Corinthians 10, but we are normally walking through the Gospel of Matthew, coming to the end of a long study in Matthew 26. And in our study of Matthew 26, we've come then to the last hours, really, of the life of Christ. The hours just before His betrayal, just before He would be handed over and soon be nailed to a cross for our salvation. And as Jesus is getting nearer to that event that he knows is coming, that he's continually preparing his disciples for and us for, the readers of the gospel, as we go through it, he's done this most amazing thing. He's taken this meal that we looked at a few weeks ago, the Passover meal, that central meal in the life of the nation of Israel that reminded them of the glorious redemption of their God, their covenant-making and keeping God from the clutches of their slavery in the land of Egypt. He delivered them through great works of power, through a mighty display of His glory, showing Himself to be the only God, the one true God, who has entered into relationship with His people, and so He delivered them. He delivered them miraculously. He delivered them through the Red Sea. He delivered them to Mount Sinai, where there he revealed his law, the law of Moses. And so in these wonderful acts of deliverance, he also commanded that they remember it through a meal. And the significance of that meal was not only in what it reminded them of, But it was also in the fact that God established their very identity. It was their birth as a nation. And God declared to them that this is how you will remember me. And this is how you will remember my saving acts. And here we come along with Jesus as we walk through the Gospels. And he's gathered around the table as it were with his disciples. And he's sharing in this meal this great remembrance of God's deliverance. And he takes this... Step This act of authority is God, and he changes it. And he makes this meal about him. And he makes this meal about his saving acts. 
He makes this meal and he transfers it to be a remembrance of God's redemption that is centered on him. It was a glorious moment. Certainly nothing that the disciples truly understood at the moment. They were, as we've mentioned, being tossed here and there by these amazing realities coming from them from every angle. Some positive like this, speaking of the work of Christ. Others negative, speaking of something, someone who was going to betray him. We looked last week that all of them were going to desert him. But it was a glorious time. And this meal that Jesus has instituted, this Lord's Supper, as it was called later in the New Testament, was to become then a central part of the worship of God's people from that time on and throughout the ages. And so it has been. And the Lord's Supper has not only been a point of worship for God's people throughout the ages, it's also been a source of contention. It's been a source of contention as the church has wrestled through how to apply these words of Christ. They've, unfortunately, through much of the history of the church, erred in different directions. From early on, around in the beginning, really in the fourth century, and developing on past that, there was the doctrine of transubstantiation that eventually developed in which these elements were claimed to be actually or to actually turn into the body and the blood of Christ and to become an integral part of our continuing in salvation the salvation that is in Christ they became in and of themselves elements of worship and then that was the church was rescued from that somewhat in the Reformation period. And then there was the idea that these elements were not actually turning into the body and blood of Christ, but they were objectively carrying in them a spiritual reality or the presence of Christ. That really came through Luther, who broke away somewhat from the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church, but not really far enough. And then there were others who said that, no, these are in fact symbols of the body of Christ. And as the church gathers together and celebrates in remembrance of what Christ has done, we proclaim his death until he comes and we enjoy a fellowship with one another and with Christ. So there's been much discussion and much contention about the meaning of the Lord's actual words. But I thought this morning what we would do is turn to a passage in the New Testament to help explain to us through the teaching of the Apostle Paul what is the real spiritual nature of this supper that we share in. What is its significance for us as God's people, as the gathered body of Christ? Now, I originally had planned to look at this in chapter 10 and then also look at the passage in its larger context that we usually read when we remember the Lord's Supper out of 1 Corinthians 11, but... I soon realized that was far too much for me anyway to cover in one message. So we're going to look this morning just at 1 Corinthians 10. So I hope you're there this morning uh, in your Bibles. 1 Corinthians 10, chapter 14, verses uh, verses 14 through 22. And we're going to see this, that the Lord's Supper is an ordinance commanded by Christ as a means of spiritual nourishment and a proclamation of His person and work, as well as... A picture of our identity as his people in whom he dwells by the Spirit. Before we look at that, let's first read our passage and then we'll look at it more closely. Begin with me in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. 
I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? And we are not stronger than he, are we? A powerful passage here in which Paul lays out for us the spiritual significance and our identity as the people of Christ and our fellowship with Christ and one another in the Lord's table. Now I want you to note the first point there beginning back up in verse 14. And the first is this, that the supper is spiritual fellowship with Christ and his people. Now we picked it up in verse 14, but of course this comes in a context. And if you look back up at verse 1... Paul begins his discussion about the idolatry that he's warning against here, addressing the Corinthians through the reminder of the history of the nation of Israel. And in doing so, he's warning them through the example of the nation of Israel of the dangers of idolatry, the dangers of false worship, the dangers of a heart that strays from the one true God. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers all under the cloud were all under the cloud and passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. And so what is he doing here? Paul is beginning by setting up an analogy with a comparison of Old Testament Israel's experience being delivered from Egypt and their time in the wilderness to this error of the Corinthian church that he's going to address in the remainder of the chapter. And the main idea that he's establishing by giving this analogy was that A nation of Israel was a nation identified as God's people. They were a people in covenant relationship with their God. They were a people with whom God had established His covenant relationship. And corporately, when He was bringing them out of Egypt as a nation, He was doing so as they were fully immersed under the leadership of Moses. That's what He means when He says they were all baptized into Moses. They were all brought under his leadership as the prophet of God at that time. And to say then that they all drank the same spiritual drink and were drinking from the spiritual rock is simply to identify them as a people who had experienced from God these supernatural provisions physically as they wandered through the wilderness, as they drank from the rock that God had told Moses to hit, and then he provided water, the manna that was provided for them. In all of these ways, God provided supernatural food for them that was, in fact, spiritual food, spiritual drink. The idea of the rock here, just because you're probably wondering, is the idea is probably, is probably drawn from a Jewish myth or Jewish teaching on this subject where they believed that 
the rock that Moses struck actually followed the Jews throughout the remainder of their time in the wilderness and continually provided water for them. Paul, or Paul here, however, is transferring that idea and saying, no, the one who was really providing for them, the one who was really making all of these things possible for them was Christ or the Messiah. And here bearing witness that even in the time of the deliverance of Israel in the Old Testament, though yet the future salvation was to come, the yet to be incarnate Son of God was providing for God's people. The pre-incarnate Son ministered and served and provided for them. But against this backdrop then is that outside of all of these supernatural and these amazing provisions of God, these supernatural witnesses to or testimonies to His divine power and to His faithfulness, the people were not faithful to their God. And so in verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, and so they were laid low in the wilderness. So verses 5 through 13 all explain that their sin brought, instead of blessing that God had intended and designed, it brought rather to them judgment. It brought to them discipline. And it brought to them discipline because they failed to remain faithful to their God and they allowed themselves to carry with them the idolatrous practices and influences of the nation of Israel and it led them down paths of sin, which then led to God's judgment of them. And so that's where we are when we come into verse 14. This is why Paul says, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. He had told them in verse 11 that these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages hath come. He's saying, so look at their example. Don't follow it. And instead, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. Now, this is not Old Testament Israel. Why is he giving this command to the church? Why is he giving this command to the Corinthian church? Well, it is because... The Corinthian church, like other churches at this time, were immersed in a culture and immersed in a society that was fraught with paganism, that was fraught with open idolatry, that was fraught with all kinds of open immoralities and all of the things that attend that kind of false worship. And in the midst of this culture, when Paul came and preached the gospel and God rescued some from their sin and this darkness and transferred them into the kingdom of God, some of them with this new knowledge and this newfound certainty and the reality of God revealed in Christ felt a certain comfortableness with going back and participating at different levels in this idolatrous worship. In other words, they felt themselves to have this particular kind of knowledge and this particular security of faith to go and participate at some level in some of this false worship that was around them. As a matter of fact, Paul had already addressed this issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. You're familiar with that. He said to them, a knowledge makes, or now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we want uh, we know that we all have knowledge, and knowledge makes arrogant, love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he's not yet known as he ought to know. And he goes on and he explains how these things sacrificed to idols, an idea he'll pick up later in chapter 10, are really nothing. Food is just food. Idols are really nothing. They really are no gods. And so therefore they can't 
really contaminate this food. And so they were free to eat it. But what was happening is some who had this particular knowledge, they were secure in the reality of God and the fact that there was no other God. For there, us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things, what he says in verse Six And so they would go and they would share these meals basically in these idols' temples. If you look at verse 10, if someone sees you who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols. So apparently some of these were going and they were partaking of these meals. It could have been through family or friends or whatever, but these meals, this food, after it was sacrificed to an idol, there would be a, a meal sometimes afterwards that they would share in. And some said, hey, we can share in this meal. A food is just food. It doesn't mean anything. But others would see that and their conscience would be bothered. Those who came out of it would be then strengthened to sin. And so Paul is warning them and saying, don't do that. But then when we come over here to chapter 10... It's a little more intense. It's not simply the idea that they're eating a meal in an idol's temple, but these are those who actually went so far as to participate in the worship of that temple. And they participated by sharing in the ceremonial meal. In other words, not just a meal that was the food, but a meal that was actually in the sharing of it, a part of the worship of that particular deity. And it's for this reason that he goes immediately to the practice of the Lord's Supper because it is the closest parallel to these meals. And he's showing that to celebrate the Lord's Supper as a Christian is completely incompatible with the worship of these false deities. These false deities. And the reality is it's totally incompatible not only because of what is representative but because of the reality that is going on in the sharing of of these meals. And so he notes first then for this church, or for us, or to the Corinthians here, that there is in the celebration of the Lord's Supper, and notice this first under this point, a spiritual communion. A spiritual communion. Look at verses 16 through 17. He says, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ. There is one bread, and we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. The one bread. Really an incredible statement and a powerful argument for the spirituality and spiritual reality of the Lord's Supper. And the place that the Lord's Supper plays in the life of the church, in the life of the church, it is a significant event in our corporate gathering in our remembrance of Christ and our fellowship with Him as the risen Lord by the Spirit and with one another. Notice what he says. He recalls it here. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless? The cup of blessing which we bless. Now the Jews did have actually a blessing that went along with all of their meals. But he's talking about something unique here. Something unique. It is that cup of blessing that is particularly attached to a sharing in the blood of Christ. So this is clearly then a reference to the Passover meal. 
This is the cup that we mentioned before, the cup of blessing and the cup of redemption that was mentioned to us in the gospel accounts that Jesus transferred to be a picture and a symbol of the death that he was going to die for his people, a pouring out of his blood for the forgiveness of sin, an establishment of the foundation of the new covenant. It is a reference then to this cup of the Passover meal that anticipated all that Christ would do for his people. The cup of blessing is not the cup of blessing, a sharing in the blood of Christ. This is a powerful, powerful statement. We've looked at this before, but let's be reminded a bit of what is signified in this cup of blessing. What is signified in, for us, not wine, but the grape juice that we drink together to remind us of all that the Apostle is speaking of here. You've noticed that when you look down into a cup of red wine, anyway, and of grape juice, what is the color? The color is red, obviously. The color is red like blood. And the point of that, as we look at these elements designed by Christ, is to remind us of the blood that was shed for His people. Of the violent death that Christ would die on behalf of his people. It reminds us then that in this blood is the symbol of death as we looked at before. And in this death is a picture of what was accomplished for our salvation. The wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord. It is a picture of the reconciliation that we Share because of the death of Christ. This is familiar territory. Let me just remind you of a few verses. However, in Colossians 1.22, he says this, Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, through death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless, Beyond reproach. There is in the redness of the wine a reminder of the violence of his death and the reality that death is what reconciles us to God through his fleshly body. It is a death that he died once for all for us and for his people. Listen again to familiar words. Don't turn there. Hebrews chapter 9, he says this, For this reason he is the mediator of a new Covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, remember that is the Mosaic covenant. We looked at that before. All of the sins that were just multiplied and multiplied and multiplied under the first covenant, under the law of Moses, he has come to atone for those. Those who have been called may receive the promise of the internal inheritance, for where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of. Of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood, for when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats and the water and scarlet and wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and the people. There is then a reminder here when we look at the redness of the wine, the redness of the grape juice, that it is the blood of Christ being 
symbolized that was poured out for us. Look at what he says next. And we're going to take this one level down and one level down. Look what he says next. There is the cup of blessing which we bless. It's a sharing in the blood of Christ. And then he says, is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? And of course, the answer to that is it is. This bread here is better translated as loaf. And the reason that's important is because when we think of bread, we can think of any type of kind of type of bread. But when we think of a loaf, we think of one piece of bread. And that really is the illustration that he's bringing out here. Now, what is he symbolizing here? What is he talking about? What he's not talking about is this. He's not saying that as bread, a loaf of bread, is made up of all of these different ingredients, that's really like the church, and so then the loaf is really a picture of the church. That's not what he's, that's not what he's saying here. Some take it that way, but that's not his point, as we'll see. The point here is this, that this loaf that they were sharing in, this one and singular loaf, is a picture and a portrait, a symbol of the person of Christ, the body of Christ, Christ in his humanity. So when we take the bread, now so for us, we don't use one loaf of bread, but we would take pieces of bread and eat it all together. So that's the way that we would symbolize in our times this unity of the bread. But for them it was, and here in this analogy, one loaf of bread that was a picture then of the physical body of Christ. It speaks of the body of his humiliation. The body that he took on to himself, that he added to his divine nature as the eternal son of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten, full of grace and of truth. It's that body, that body in the incarnation, that body that he took on for us. It is symbolized here in the bread. The body in which he lived a sinless life. The body in which he overcame every temptation. The body through which he revealed the Father among men. The body in which he suffered the abuse of men. The body that he offered as a sacrifice for our sin. The body in which he accomplished an atonement for the sin of his people. A body in which he could bear the curse of the law for us. In which he could be made sin, a body in which he could bear in a way that he could not without it, the abandonment of the Father on the cross for our sin, a body in which he could suffer for us in a way and with such anguish of soul that he could satisfy divine wrath for your sin, for my sin, for everyone who has trusted in him. It's that body, it's that body And it's these realities then that are represented in the bread and in the juice or the wine. But he says here something significant. Look at this. That part we're familiar with. But look at what he says. He says, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? And is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? This is powerful, powerful language. There is a sense here then in which he's directing us past the elements themselves, and he's reminding us of our spiritual union with Christ, our spiritual fellowship that we have with Christ. Now, he uses a term here that we're all familiar with. You've, you know the term koinonia. Often it's translated as fellowship. It can speak of participation. It's used a variety of ways in scriptures. As a matter of fact, 
In 2 Corinthians, just to give you an idea of this term as we zero in on what he means here. In 2 Corinthians 8, 4 and 9, 13, it speaks of participation in the ministry of relief for the poor saints that were in Jerusalem. And so it's translated there as participation. Same way in Romans 15, 26. This word can mean, can speak of Christian fellowship that's expressed in our outward unity and our outward faith in Christ. As a matter of fact, that's the way it's used. Don't turn there. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, he says, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Breaking of bread there is communal meals that they were sharing. It, it might also be a an allusion to the celebration of the supper, but primarily the fact that they were constantly in fellowship with one another, demonstrating the reality of their newfound salvation in Christ and demonstrating the unity and the closeness that they have together through Christ. The term is used also as a public affirmation of ministry in Galatians 2.9. It's used of participating in the financial support of ministry in Philippians 1.5. It's used of the heightened inner experience of God's people when they suffer with him for the gospel. So Paul speaks of in Philippians 3.10, a fellowship of his sufferings. And that is not only that he is experiencing the same kind of sufferings because of what he endured, all the physical suffering that he endured because of his faithfulness to the cross, but it speaks also of the kind of fellowship with the risen Christ that he enjoyed, that was his strength, that he came to know more intimately because of this suffering. And so here in 1 Corinthians 10, this idea of sharing in the body and the blood of Christ can be taken in two different ways. It can be seen as having two different kind of emphasis. One is simply to emphasize this. It's saying it's a sharing in this sense. It's a fellowship that God's people have together as they outwardly, publicly identify with the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so they share that in common as God's people. It could also be taken in this way. It could be taken with an emphasis on the spiritual communion or fellowship with the risen Christ that his people have because of what is represented in those elements in the table. In other words, in the blood and the body of Christ. In that way, it would have a sense of both the identity of God's people and their faith in Christ as well as a participation in that very life together. And so I would recommend this, that these two ideas are together. They don't need to be so sharply divided. There is an element of both that Paul is emphasizing. In other words, when we come to the table, when we come and we share in these elements, there is a proclamation of the death of Christ, of the work of Christ. He'll mention that in chapter 11. There is an identification that we have together as the people of God with Christ. And our faith in his death on our behalf, our trust in his resurrection on our behalf, our commitment to follow him and give our lives to him out of trust in all that he is for us in the gospel. But the reality that is behind that and the reality that gives that a significance is that we are in fact actually participating in the life of Christ. We are in fact his people 
in whom Christ dwells by the Spirit of God, the Spirit whom he sent after his ascension to the Father. And that's really forming a part of the weight here of the apostles' argument. In other words, he's saying, look, there is a lot more going on here than simply food, simply the elements of food. In other words, when we gather as the people of God, we do so not only externally as a people who identify with Christ, but who claim to share in the very life of that one with whom we identify with. Listen to what he says. Let me me back up just a little bit. Listen to what he says in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. He says this. You're familiar with this. He says, Do you not know that your bodies are members, in verse 15, members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord, listen, is one spirit with him. There's a spiritual reality that is true of you as a believer that then joined Christ in your sin in the body, in this case particularly immorality. So he says in verse 18, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. And here, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? In other words, you're not just this free-floating body that's around, this free-floating spirit that is around. There is a spiritual reality that is true of everybody who is united to Christ that in this case is so real and is so true that it can be said that if this you were to join your body to a prostitute, you're engaging Christ in that very sin. So close is this union. So real is this spiritual reality that we share with the risen Christ. And this is really the idea that he's emphasizing here. Listen to what he says in verse, how he opens the letter in verse 9 of chapter 1. And using the same term that he uses here for fellowship. He says, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. There is a fellowship that we share with the risen Christ that is demonstrated and in fact even experienced through faith when we come together to share the Lord's table. There is a fellowship that we share as those who are in Christ as we participate of these benefits of Christ together and rejoice in them. Listen to what he says in 1 John. Speaking of this, from a, in a different context, but listen. He says, What we've seen and heard in verse 3, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. There's a fellowship that we share. There's a reality of our union with Christ that when we come to the table, we experience in a unique way as the gathered people of God as those who constitute the body of Christ, as those who constitute, in the words of Scripture, the temple of God. And so he says, look what he heard, then after that, in verse 17, he says, 
than going from these spiritual realities. It says, since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And here Paul moves from an emphasis on to the, from the spiritual to the physical act, I think, of celebration. And the term he uses here, it means to take part in something. And often it's used, and how he uses it actually in this passage, is to partake of the actual elements of the meal. He'll use it three times here in verse 17 and verse 21 when he says, uh, you cannot partake of the table of the Lord and partake implied of the table of demons. He'll use it again in verse 30. If I partake, in other words, of the food at this meal that he's sharing with an unbeliever with thankfulness. And so here he's emphasizing of what is symbolized in our coming together and sharing in this meal, this bread from the one loaf, as it were, together as God's people. And so he focuses here particularly on this element because of the symbolism it bears to his larger point regarding the church. And the emphasis is this, that when the church is gathered to celebrate the supper, we do so as the body of Christ, as the body of Christ. Look at what he says in the middle of verse 17, that we who are many are one body. And this is a powerful teaching. In what way then are we the one body of Christ, that though we are many, we are the one body of Christ? It's essentially in this way. That we as the gathered people of God, who are in genuine spiritual union with Christ, have the life of Christ in us. And as those who together have the life in, of Christ in us, we constitute, though many, the one body of Christ. The physical expression of Christ here on the earth. And that's symbolized through our taking from the one loaf. That though we are many, yet we are one body. Those are his words. Again, he's going to make the same point over in chapter 12. He says in verse 13... Or actually beginning in verse 12. For even as the body is one and yet has many members and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. And the simple illustration here is this, that, that every other physical Barrier is broken down through the unity that God's people share by their union with Christ in the one spirit. Now Paul is particularly in chapter 12 and on there addressing the local congregation of the Corinthian church. But the principle that underlies his address to them is the reality that is true for every true believer in union with Christ. That if you are in union with Christ, you have his life in you, and you are then an expression of Christ's body here on earth. It's an absolutely incredible statement. That's why to sin involves Christ in that sin. That's why to suffer the hatred toward Christ in our body is actually to fill up the measure of his suffering in Colossians 1. Because the church is here on earth, though imperfectly, yet as the ones in whom the life of Christ resides by the Spirit, we are His body here on earth. And we picture that here in the Lord's 
table, in the Lord's table. Tremendous, tremendous truths. Tremendous truths. Let me just give you one other example of this. In Ephesians chapter 2. Again, don't turn there. Let me just read it to you. You're familiar with it. Ephesians chapter 2 says something similar. He says, We through him have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Different metaphor there, but the same idea. The same idea, though many, yet one because of being indwelt by the Spirit of God. And so the point here that I'm emphasizing is this, and that Paul is bringing out, is that when we come to the table, we are with the utmost joy and thankfulness, with the utmost gratefulness of heart, and the utmost spiritual sobriety and seriousness, understand that we come together as those in whom the life of Christ Dwells and we give public testimony to our union with Him, and we enjoy uniquely as the people of God all of the spiritual benefits that we have in Christ together, all of that uniquely portrayed here in the table. That in Christ we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and it is then a foretaste of the worship that we will share together as God's gathered people in heaven forever and for eternity. One put it this way, and I quote, When we properly share in communion, we spiritually participate in fellowship with Jesus Christ and with other believers. It's much more than a symbol. It is a profound celebration of common spiritual experience. It is then to say that as we come, I am not just... Doing a, it's not just this thing that I do, like I would eat any other meal. It is to say that I am in this giving testimony to the reality of my spiritual life in Christ and Christ in me. I'm bearing testimony, and in fact, in this remembrance and in this act of faith, experiencing freshly the union that I have with Christ and with His people. It is to say then the reality of like Christ's life is to be evident in us as well. Now, and this is very important to understand. Again, it's not the bread and the wine or the grape juice or whatever we use that is of spiritual significance. As a matter of fact, everybody in here, we could go make a run on Big Y or Stop and Shop after the service, buy up all of their grape juice, go home and drink that grape juice, and it has not this spiritual significance. Even though we might eat it together around the table, drink it together around the table, even though we might get a loaf of bread and each pull off a piece, it doesn't have the same spiritual significance. It's not the bread and it's not the wine. He's going to clarify this point. We're not going to have time to look at it, but he's going to clarify this point in 23 down through the end of the chapter. He's going to say, look, you can take that same food that he's now saying would be sin and an act of worship to participate in, But if you go over to someone's house 
and they're eating this food that was offered to an idol, don't feel bad in your conscience. There's no reason that you should feel bad in your conscience because it's just food. In other words, it's no longer associated with the worship of that idol, and now you are free to eat it. It has no spiritual significance whatsoever. It is simply food. But that's not the context that he's speaking of here and giving this warning. When it is a part of and has the content of the deity that it is prescribed to worship, then it takes on a different significance. It's a different significance. And that's why he immediately moves, look, in verse 18, to why they cannot, they cannot take of the Lord's Supper and participate in a meal of worship in these pagan temples. In these pagan temples. But the point here first is this, that the significance of these, these elements, again, is not the fact that these elements have some kind of objective reality of the person of Christ in them at all. It is the fact that when these elements in the context of the gathered people of God are offered as the symbols that God intended them to be with all of the content of Christ and His death and His resurrection is known that there is in taking these elements together a spiritual experience and reality of communion with Christ and with one another by the Spirit of God that is real, that is real, and that is to be fully participated in and experienced by His people through faith. But then he goes, look, in verse 18, and these next points will be brief and we'll end with these, is this, that the supper is then not to be polluted with false worship. Now let's look at first of what was going on here. He says, in verse 18, he says, Look at the nation of Israel, are not those who eat the sacrifices, shares in the altar? What do I mean then, that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. But I say the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God, and I do not want you to become sharers in demons. Now notice in verse 18 that Paul makes a transition here. He's transitioning. And he's using the nation of Israel, probably likely because the sacrifices in the nation of Israel modeled a little more closely the sacrifices in the pagan temples. In other words, the celebration of the Lord's Supper was not in itself a sacrifice. It's not a sacrifice. It's a remembrance of the sacrifice that Christ accomplished for us. In the pagan ritual, like in Old Testament Israel, the sacrifice was itself an actual sacrifice. That they were participating in. And so he uses Israel here as an example of what's going on in these pagan rituals. And he's probably referring here to Deuteronomy 14, uh, 22 through 27. Not the priestly participation in the sacrifices, but what Israel shared together as a nation when they ate of the sacrifices to God. And, of course, the altar there is just a figure of speech for the whole process of the sacrifice and the meal. But he immediately transitions then to what they were doing here in Corinth. And he says, what you're doing is sharing in the actual worship and the sacrifice that's being given to these things. And don't do it because that's sharing in demons. And he's drawing here from Deuteronomy 32:17. Let me just briefly read that to you. And this is a powerful way then for us to begin to understand the sobriety at which we come to the Lord's table. But first let's look at this point. In Deuteronomy 32, 17, he says this. 
speaking of Israel when they were going through the wilderness, they sacrificed to demons who were not God and to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. In verse 18, you neglected the rock who begot you and you forgot the God who gave you birth. In other words, this was God's rebuke to the people who came out of Egypt who essentially tried to synchronize the worship that they had in Egypt with the worship that was being established for them by God, by their God who had delivered them. And so they would do sacrifices that God had prescribed, but they would also do sacrifices to these other deities. And he says, look, this isn't simply another form of worship. This is, in fact, demonic. It's demonic. It's of Satan. It's of the evil one. And so he's saying here that, look, even though this specific God may not exist, look what he says. That, uh, he says, do I mean that an idol is anything? Of course not. It's not that that God actually exists. It's not that Aphrodite's actually existed or Serapis or some of these other gods that were a part of their culture. But he is saying this, but to say that an idol is nothing, and this is where we sometimes misrepresent this. To say that an idol is nothing and that it's no God is not to say that there is no spiritual reality behind that idol. Do you see the difference? It is not to say that, hey, that statue has nothing spiritual about it because it's just a statue. That's not what he's saying. He's saying what is supposedly represented by that statue is not real, but there are spiritual realities. They're demonic, they're evil, they're satanic. They have the spirit of darkness behind them. Now, I would remind us here that demons are not omnipotent, they're not omnipresent, they're not omniscient, they're not any of those things that belong to God alone, but they are real. And they do have a measure of power. And they do have a measure of influence that they wield over people. We saw that already as we walked through the gospel accounts. Judas went from simply being an unbeliever to one who fell completely under the spell of Satan himself, such that John said in John 13 that Satan entered into him. Peter and the disciples, though believers, not yet in the new covenant sense of the indwelling spirit, but regenerate believers, true faith, were yet, he said, sifted by Satan in such a way that they fell prey to some of his temptations and deny or denied Christ or fled from him in the night of his betrayal. What goes on in a lot of false religions and spiritualist type of religions today, frankly, is just silly. Most of it is just silly. It's just kind of silly stuff. But that's not to say it all is. It's all false. It's all an error. It's all lies. But some of it is real. You ever seen some of those things, just as an example, where people bend spoons? Some of that's real. People see ghosts and apparitions. There's a reality to some of that. The reality, however, is is that it's demonic, that it is of Satan, and that the purpose of the power that demons exercise is to deceive, to deceive. But it would be wrong to say that all of that is simply empty and there's nothing to it, and that's what Paul is saying here. It's not just empty. It's not just nothing. Yes, food is just food, and I get that. But what it is representing in worship is real. And it represents demons. And he says, look, I do not want you to be sharers in demons. 
and demons. And this is exactly what's happening with the idolatry that they were practicing. And here's the last point, and this is for us to prepare us and bring us into the table this morning. I'm going to make this quickly. And it's the third point. It's this. The supper then is truly a spiritual nourishing experience, listen, to those not only who are genuinely united to Christ by the Spirit, but also to those who are pursuing holiness of heart. Now he's warning here against idols, but there's a broader point to be made about his warning here. Now he's addressing clearly then this crass kind of idolatry that actually had temples and that actually had statues and images of these gods. That's just sort of the crass kind of paganism that there was surrounded. And so he's addressing that. And so we can kind of read through this and feel a little bit far removed from what he's warning against here. But the warning against idolatry is much more searching and far-reaching than that. Now, he's already addressed manifestations of this back in verses 6 through 13, where he says, they, they sat down to eat and drink, and they stood up to play, nor let us act immorally. And they grumbled, and they tested the Lord. And all of those were the fruits of their idolatrous hearts. All of those were the fruits of their idolatrous hearts. In other words... Idolatry is a much larger category, as you know this, than images in pagan temples. It's a much larger category than that. And if you were to think of what is idolatry in its broadest sense, it is this. It is to love and worship and devote yourself to anything other than to God himself. That's the idea of idolatry. Now, we don't have time to look at all these, but I'm going to mention just a few verses here. Ezekiel chapter 6 and verse and 9 and Ezekiel 14, he speaks of this. He speaks of the idols of the hearts in reference to Israel. In other words, what he's dressing to them and saying, look, you have these external idols and I'm going to, to address that. But what it is really is that in your heart you long for them. In your heart you find affections for all that these represent. And more than that, not only what they represent, but the sinful practices associated with them. And that really is the issue. There are all kinds of sinful practices, but one that was chief among them in common was immorality. And part of what they delighted in wasn't so much the God as much as that God became a justification, a rationalization for them to practice in all kinds of iniquity and all kinds of sin. And he says the problem is, is that the issue lies in your heart. In your heart. In Romans 1.25, he speaks of exchanging the truth of God for a lie and worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. And it, he says that in verse 25. And again, we have to rush. We're not going to go there. But in verse 24 and verse 26, so before and after that, the sin that he identifies with this kind of idolatry is lust, lust of their hearts and degrading passions. Because that's ultimately what is associated with it. What is the one dominant thing in our culture is this obsession with sex, this obsession with getting rid of the true God so that there can be an indulgence in every kind of perversion and every kind of iniquity without conscience. And there's other manifestations too, but that is a primary one. And all of those are different forms of idolatry. Different forms of idolatry. We can also commit idolatry when we worship God in the wrong way. 
the Roman Catholic Mass is a massive, to borrow that term, massive expression of idolatry. Why? Because it transfers the reality of Christ, who is at the right hand of the Father in his full body and humanity, to a loaf, to a physical element, to a piece of bread, and it becomes idolatry. It becomes something that it's not. And so every time that it's practiced, it is participation in the very thing that he is warning against here. And it teaches a wrong understanding of salvation. Most penetratingly, though, Paul would later say to the Colossians that greed, which amounts to idolatry, the greed of our heart, and though that can be, we think of that in material ways, the idea behind that word greed is that I want more. It's an insatiable lust for something that is self-satisfying outside of God. Outside of God. And so if we come to the Lord's table now, and how we would be careful to take the warning that Paul gives here, the instruction is one, not only to realize the spiritual reality of what we're participating in, but also to be aware of this. If you come to the Lord's table not confident of that spiritual reality, you come in a wrong manner. If we come to the table, we're coming saying that we are in fact demonstrating this life that we profess to share with him who died and with him who rose. If we come with the spirit of bitterness, of criticism, if we come with unforgiveness, if we come with hidden lust that we know about that we're not dealing with, whatever those lusts might be, They could be sexual. They could be for material things in this world. They could be for all kinds of vanity, whatever it is. If we come that way, then we come spiritually polluted, which is what he warns here. And so we're to come in a worthy manner because when we come to the table, we're engaging in a unique expression of spiritual worship with the risen Lord that he commanded. And we are giving testimony of our spiritual union with Christ and by the Spirit, our union with one another. And we are proclaiming his name and his glory and his perfections and his holiness together as the people of God. So now let's prepare our hearts as the men hand out the elements to worship the Lord in spirit and truth at his table. Father, we do pray that as we take these moments to remember your death or the death and the resurrection of the Son on our behalf, our Lord, as we remember your blood spilled and your body given for us, May we truly adore you in our hearts and may you truly be pleased with the the sincerity of our faith and our lives that we offer to you and help us to come with purity, expose anything that would hinder the pure and delightful worship of you. And Lord, for those again who don't know you, may they recognize that they are outside of these saving realities and may they even this day confess you, Christ, as Lord and give their life to you in truth and faith. And we pray this in your precious name.